Yes, everyone to stand, please. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to each, each to his own town. Joseph too went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David that's called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of, and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds in that region, living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were struck with great fear. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I proclaim to you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For today in the city of Abraham, the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Christ and Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So right before Thanksgiving, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went to get a COVID test. And uh, somebody suggested a, it was a, one of the walk-in places in Rockville Center, should the lines were not so bad. So I went. Um, that wasn't completely true. There was definitely a line. It wasn't as crazy as some of them, some of the lines that I saw over the last couple of weeks. But I was waiting, waiting, waiting outside uh, on the sidewalk. And at a certain point, uh, somebody who worked in the clinic came out and uh, she had a clipboard. So she wanted to kind of, I guess, like almost pre-register us to move, maybe move the process along. So just, you know, what's your name? date of birth, uh, insurance information, that kind of stuff. So I'm, uh, I'm giving them, giving her, uh, yeah, I gave her that. You know, I said, she asked what my date of birth was. I said, oh, uh, I said, 6-23-65, June 23rd, 65. And um, as soon as I'm done, there's a guy who was standing right behind me. He says to me, uh, would you say your birthday was? And I said, uh, June 23rd, 65. And he said, me too. <laughs> um, same day, same year. It's kind of crazy, and that had never happened to me before. Um, I looked way better than this guy did by far. <laughs> Just saying. Um, anyway, we, uh, we talked for a bit. Um, we, were both, we were both born in Brooklyn. So he didn't know, I, I, I knew the hospital that I was born in, he didn't, so who knows, you know, we, we might have been roommates, you know, if, if it had to have maybe been the same hospital. Uh, anyway, we, we eventually get into the inside, the, uh, the doctor's office, and we're now kind of seated in this waiting room area, 
So we just talk a little bit more. Uh, and he says to me, uh, <laughs> he says, do you remember, do you remember in high school and then college and the whole drinking age thing? Um, and I was like, yeah, you bet I do. Um, if you were born in 1965, um, you remember well kind of the, the drama that involved the drinking age, uh, the change of the drinking age. Uh, for us, it was kind of traumatic. We were 17 when the drinking age was 18. And then it moved to 19 before we got to 19, uh, before we even got to 18. So it was like, oh, you know, another, another year we had to wait. Um, People forget that actually for a couple, of, for two years, it, it, was, it was, the drinking age was 19, not 21. It didn't go from 18 to 21. Only those of us who were affected would probably remember that. Um, so then anyway, I'm, now I'm 19 and, and of age, um, I was 20. I remember being now, I was 20 actually. And there was talk that, man, they were gonna move it to 21. Um, so when I was 20, it went to 21, which meant I lost, there was no grandfather clause. So um, we were outraged. We couldn't believe this. We were like, we had never been so civic-minded in our lives. We wanted to write the governor, and we were just, this is unfair, and we have rights. You could be in the army carrying a rifle some part of the world, and you can't have a drink. You can vote at 18, and you can't have a beer. There may or may not have been some conversation about fake IDs in this doctor's office during that time. Anyway, it was, uh, it was funny talking to him because a lot of these very, I never met the guy, but just very common memories came back because we were just from the same time. And then we kind of stopped talking for a little bit, just sort of, you know, ran out of stuff to talk about, I guess. And then he, and then he comes back in conversation and he said to me, uh, do you remember the feeling of when, the feeling of sort of like relief and almost like welcome when we finally turned 21? When you could finally get into a place, nobody was stopping you. I mean, they were, they were proof you, but you got in. You were allowed in. I totally remember that feeling. Um, it was just the best to now be kind of included. Being allowed in. I remember when I was a kid being at a at a birthday party, and I was young. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I was probably like seven, maybe, or eight. And I don't even remember, I, I know I, details of this was so long ago, I, I, I barely remember the peripherals, but I, I remember this. I was at this party with other kids, and a group of them decided that they formed a club, whatever that meant. You know, they were seven, but like they had formed a club and it was obvious, it was clear that I wasn't in it. And that's what they were coming over to tell me. And they said, uh, 
You need to know the password in order to get in the club. I didn't know the password. I didn't even know there was a club. I mean, prior to probably 15 minutes before, there was no club. So I couldn't get in. Like this imaginary club, essentially, I wasn't welcome in because I didn't know the password. You know, it was seven-year-olds being seven-year-olds, but man, I was upset. I remember crying to my mother about it. They weren't letting me kind of be part of their club. Being excluded is terrible. How could I remember that how many years later? Or at least the feeling I remember clearly. Why, why God chose a stable for his son to be born in. People have written forever about that. Was it just a just the practical fact of the moment? Well, maybe we did more go into it. Was there a was there something going on? Was it was it part of some plan, God plan. Uh, why not have him be born into a mansion or a palace? I mean, isn't that where uh, the Messiah, you would ex- kind of anticipate the Messiah being born into? I mean, a barn? Maybe it's for this simple reason. Because most people wouldn't have felt welcome in a mansion or a palace because most of us don't come from palaces and mansions. Anybody can go to a barn. Nobody feels unwelcome in a stable. No passwords needed to get into the stable. Man, maybe that was part of this. Maybe this was like one more piece to this just genius, divine story. No, no, we, we're, gonna, we're gonna send him to, to the people in kind of a smelly barn. So nobody will ever feel like they can't get close to him. But if you put him into an exclusive club, where passwords are required. Some people just won't even get go near it. The shepherds? The shepherds wouldn't have gone anywhere near a palace. They would have felt beyond unwelcome in a, in a mansion. They were shepherds. You know, I... Remember reading uh, this article a couple of years ago now, and it was about this woman, this woman from Poland who had died. She was uh, she was probably in her well, she was elderly. I forget I forget how old she was, but uh, really the reason this her death made the news was this experience that she had had years before. Listen to this. 
1943, there was an uprising against the Nazi occupiers in the Jewish ghetto in Czestochowa, Poland, which the SS quickly crushed, killing many Jews. Many more were sent to death camps. Those who remained in Czestochowa worked on as slave laborers. It goes on to describe this girl, Jewish girl who had been separated from her, her family. She escapes from one of these camps. Just 13 years old and exhausted and malnourished, Edith Zire found her way to a depot along, along one of the train lines that ran through Chestahoa. Believing her family was alive in Krakow, she climbed into a coal car that was part of a train that she hoped would take her there, back to her family. But the cold wind that blew through the open car was too much to bear. And about two hours later, in fear of being frozen to death, she climbed out of the car when the train stopped. She sat outside the train station. Each passerby ignored her, though it was clear that she was a refugee. She was dressed in the numbered uniform, now ragged, that the always efficient Nazis made slave laborers wear. Anyone with eyes to see could tell how weak and hungry she must have been, but nobody came to her aid. Death was approaching, but a young man approached first. He was very good-looking, Edith recalled, strong and vigorous. He asked her, why are you here? What are you doing? So she told him, the young man also wanted to know her name, and she told him, which then made her cry, because for years she had been merely a number. He walked away only to return with a cup of tea. As she drank, he said he was also headed to Krakow, and he pledged to get her, help her get there. Fearing that she was starving, he went back to the place where he'd gotten the tea, and he returned now with bread and cheese. The stranger, familiar with the train lines and the schedules, knew that the soonest train destined for Krakow was several villages away. Try to stand, he said to her, but she couldn't. So he took her up onto his back and he carried her more than a mile and a half to that other station. Once again, she found herself in a coal car. Another Jewish refugee family was also hiding there. This young stranger settled into the car as well. He put his coat around Edith. He built a small fire in the bed of the car to provide warmth and light against the bitter winter cold. Finally, he introduced himself. My name is Carol, Carol Wojtyla. With the coat removed, Edith and this Jewish family could see that he was a Catholic priest, or so they assumed from his cassock he was wearing. In fact, he was still just a seminarian. When they arrived in Krakow, Carol exited the train to get information that might help her help Edith find her family. When he returned, she was gone. I ran away, she said, because people started to ask why this priest would help this Jewish girl. Why would he take that chance? She recalled hiding behind a stack of metal milk containers when he 
when he began calling out her name, Edith, Edith, come back. Here were two people in a ravaged land, a 24-year-old Catholic and a 13-year-old Jew. The future Pope had already lost his mother, father, and brother. Edith, although she didn't know it at the time, had already lost her mother, father, and sister. They couldn't have been more alone. When she read in a newspaper in 1978 that this extraordinary man had become Pope, she wept. She wrote to him several times but never received a reply, not for 20 years. But in 1998, they were reunited in the Vatican. At that meeting, at that meeting, the Pope laid his hand upon her head and said, Edith, Edith, come back. She said, I wouldn't have survived had it not been for him. You know, the article goes, goes on in more detail to talk about the chance that he took. She was obviously a refugee, and he was obviously rescuing her. He was defying Nazi martial law. He was risking his own life saving hers. You know, what, what leads someone to do that or to be that? I'll bet it's somebody who understands this stable thing. Jesus being, God being born in a stable this, there's no password thing. No passwords needed to be part of the club. You know who I think it's not? You know what kind of person I think doesn't do what that future pope did? Somebody who's just spiritual and not religious. The one whose faith is only personal. The one who keeps him at a safe distance. The one who just doesn't want to get close to the stable. Because the closer you get, the further into the stable we go, the closer we get to him, the, warm, the more we become rescuers the more we become heroes, maybe even saints. Pope Benedict had this, I think, this great quote. He was just talking about the, the Christmas story. And again, this idea of like, man, of all ways of, of making this all happen, of all the ways in which God could choose to enter the world, It's this way, this place. He said, we only belong to this family because his son came to pitch a tent among us. I love that. What a great line. What a great image. The only reason we're part of this family is because God decided to pitch a tent real close to us.
He sets up camp right next to us. No clubs, no passwords. It was interesting, that guy that I met in Rockville Center, I mean, like our birthday, kind of brought us together, our common birthday, and then generated, you know, nice conversation for 15 minutes. Well, his is coming soon. So set up camp. Pitch your tent. Let him get close.